0: Man, thank you, Jim. Well, good morning again. Uh, we are starting in on a new series today called The Death of Shame. Our topic will be shame over the course of the next weeks. And uh, today I want to talk about good shame and bad shame. Um, if there is such a thing, you can say, well, Gordon, well, how could shame be a good thing because it's a negative emotion? Well, why would that be a good thing? Well, there's certain, there's certain circumstances where when we our conduct is of a certain kind, There's some shame that we should naturally feel. For example, I don't know if any of y'all caught the police blotter this past week, but there was a grandmother that got into a fight with a mom from an opposing little league baseball team um, out here on the Oconee Veterans Park this past week, and uh, the grandmother walked out into the field berated the umpire because of a call. She was not the coach, but she was out on the field, walked out of the stands, went back to her seat. After the game, she confronted the umpire. A mom from the opposing team walked by, and she said, hey, good game, ump. The grandmother attacked the mom from the opposing teammate's team, and they got into the whole thing. The cops came out, hauled them off to jail, mug shots, the whole bit. Now, I, I'm telling you this information secondhand, so if I'm missing a few details, Y'all can read the police blotter and, uh, and learn about it yourself. But in other case, I think as I'm hearing this story, I'm thinking to myself, have these people no shame? <laughs> shouldn't they be feeling some remorse? Shouldn't a little switch have flipped in their mind that said, maybe I shouldn't be out here on the field hollering at the umpire in front of all these people, publicly disgracing myself? Nevertheless, um, so shame can be a good thing. Shame can also be a bad thing. That when, those, when, when we realize that we have remorse and regret about what we've done, then sometimes that can transfer and go from, you know what, not only was my behavior bad, but now I'm starting to think that I am bad. Not only was my behavior unacceptable, but now I think inherently I am unacceptable. And that's when shame becomes a bad thing. So over the course of the coming weeks, We're going to talk about shame as a bad consequence and how shame becomes toxic in our lives. But for today, we want to focus on the good kind of shame, the shame of regret, the shame of feelings of remorse that we should feel in the face of actions and conduct that are unbecoming um, of us as believers. So uh, with that, our text for today is Psalm chapter 32. I'm going to ask if you would to flip over there. Psalm chapter 32. This is a psalm from David, um, and he's writing about a particular time in his life after he had had some really bad conduct, and he's feeling remorseful about it, okay? So let's stand and read together. Psalm chapter 32, we'll be reading verses 3 through 5. Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. Here we go. "'For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity.'" I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Okay, let me give you just a little bit of background, what's going on, why uh, the psalmist David writes these words. Um, David has just, um, he was king of Israel, and he has vast amounts of wealth, more than he could ever want or wish for, but one day he steps out on the veranda of his house, and he sees a pretty lady, and he thinks to himself, I want to meet this pretty lady, and so he goes and summons her, and she comes to his house, and he does more than just meet her. He ends up committing adultery with her. Um, They conceive a child together out of their adultery, and the woman of the name of that woman that he saw, her name was Bathsheba. Now, David knew at the time that Bathsheba was the wife of one of his top generals, a guy by the name of Uriah. To keep the matter quiet, uh, to make sure that there wasn't a blowback because of what had happened, and to make sure that this child that they had conceived was covered up, um, he, has, uh, Uri- he has Uriah, he has Bathsheba's um, husband knocked off, has him rubbed out, has him essentially murdered. And so David thinks to himself, well, all nice and done clean. We've made a clean break here. We've covered it all up really, w- really well, or so David thinks. What's recorded here in these verses Um, are the thoughts of David in about a a one-year interim between when he had committed this um, egregious act of sin, uh, the adultery and the murder, and the confrontation that he experiences. We'll see that here in a little bit of the prophet Nathan. So he's in a little one-year window here where he has some time to think about and germinate on his actions that he had taken. So let's look at these verses together, Psalm 32, beginning at verse 3. He says, "...for when I kept silent, about Bathsheba, my bones wasted away. He says, I was groaning all day long. You see, David felt shame. Even though he had covered up his actions, he couldn't cover up what his conscience was telling him. And so his conscience was alive, and it was pricking him, and it wouldn't let him sleep. It was staying with him, as he said, all day long. This stuff just weighed on uh, David. And so verse 4 says, for day and night your hand O God was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Friends, what this tells us is that David couldn't bury his sins. David couldn't put them deep enough down the ground that he wouldn't have to remember them anymore. He couldn't find a cliff that was tall enough to throw them off of where he would never have to be confronted with them again. Uh, instead, David was constantly, he says, these things were in his mind as he was like working out things for his kingdom, as he was heading to bed at night, and he was getting up in the morning, sitting down and eating his breakfast at his time of prayers each day. Every time he closed his eyes to talk to the Lord, it says, this stuff was just like a plague. It was sitting on his mind. It was sitting on his heart. He says, it was with me all day long. It was like Tar Baby. Y'all ever heard of Tar Baby before, right? You got the Tar Baby concept, and it's like he's trying to shake this thing off, and he just cannot get rid of it. It's like a Tar Baby. He can't get it um, to to go away, and it's a good thing that David feels this way, right? If David didn't feel this way about the adultery and murder, uh, we might think to ourselves, what's wrong with David? Um, Why wouldn't David—so this is a healthy response to his sin, you know, the wonderful thing about the Lord God is that he, did, he let David stew, right, for a little while, let him sit in this for a year and think about this for a year until David had finally come to a place where he was ready to deal with his sin. Flip over in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and um, here God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David about what he had done a year prior. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Um, Nathan comes in and he has an aim to confront David, that is not just to confront him, but also to rescue David out of these feelings of shame that he's been so plagued with. And uh, so Nathan begins with a story. He tells David about a certain rich man who had lots of sheep. He had lots of goat, massive flocks. He was a rich man. A visitor comes to this rich man's house one day. This is the beginning of chapter twelve, Nathan telling the story to David. A rich man comes to this visitor I mean, a visitor comes to this rich man's house. And the rich man wants to put on a feast for him. He wants to show him some hospitality. Well, there was a poor man who lived in the village, who lived nearby, and the poor man didn't have lots of sheep. He didn't have lots of goat. He wasn't rich. He was poor. He had just a single sheep. But the Bible tells us that he loved this sheep. Um, His children loved this sheep. He brought this sheep into his house. He says at the end of verse 3 there, Nathan does in the story, he says that the sheep was like a daughter to the poor man. Verse 4 says, now there came a traveler, an out-of-town visitor to the rich man's house, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flocks or herds to prepare for the guests who had come to him. So the rich guy wanting to put on this meal for the visitor that's come to town, wants to show him some hospitality, wants to take some fresh meat, and wants to roast this lamb and have this meal with this guy. But he's thinking to himself, you know, I, I, I got I got some sheep out here, but I'm not sure it's quite enough. I've got some goats out here, but I'm not sure I want to take one of them. And so what he ends up doing is he goes down and he steals uh, the, the one sheep from the rich man. So he says there at the end of verse four that he took the poor man's lamb. That is, he stole it, he forcibly took it and prepared it for the visitor's supper. Well, David's thinking this is a real story that has happened in David's kingdom. And so David's response to all this, verse five is, and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. David's assessing the situation. He's thinking, there's a rich man in my kingdom who has all these sheep, who has all these goats, and he went on occasion when he needed a lamb, could have taken any of the hundreds and thousands perhaps that he had of his own, and he goes down to the poor man's house and he takes the one sheep that this guy had in his house that he loved so much that he treated like his own daughter, and he takes that sheep out of his house, and David's assessing all this, and he thinks to himself, that guy deserves to die. And so Nathan says, hey, David, I'm glad that you feel that way about it. Verse seven, he says, because you are that man. You're that guy. You did just exactly that in your own right. You had everything that you could possibly want or need, David, and yet you stole the wife of another, and you had the husband of that woman murdered. David, you're worse than the guy with my made-up story who stole a sheep. You stole the bride from somebody else, and you murdered her innocent husband. Now, David has two choices when he's confronted by Nathan. He can continue the cover-up, right? He's the king. He can send Nathan on down to the dungeon, uh, put, a, put, a, put a gag order on him, and nobody's supposed to talk to him, and Nathan could just uh, fade into history, and nobody would ever be the wiser. So that was choice number one for David. Or he could admit what he had done. He could confess his sin. Um, he could open the proverbial closet, right, and let the skeletons fall on out. So those are David's two choices. Keep the cover-up going, keep the catch-me-if-you-can in play, or go ahead and admit what he's done. Um, let's look at what he chooses, verse 13, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. So David's confronted, he responds, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan says in response to that, he says, the Lord has put away your sin. Isn't that wonderful that when, when at the moment for a year, David has struggled with, has wrestled with, acknowledging what he had done and admitting what he had done and what was wrong, confessing this sin. And now at the very point when he finally confesses this sin, David immediately is forgiven by the Lord. The Lord doesn't send him off to go do some penance. The Lord doesn't say, hey, David, in a little while after you struggle with this, after you've felt really sour about yourself, then I'll come in and I'll forgive you. No, the Lord immediately, as David, as soon as he confesses, the Lord matches David's confession with forgiveness. All right, well, that's our treatment of this text for today, which means it's time for us to ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, that was a story, a pretty neat story that happened in David's life. That was a long time ago. How does that help me in my life today? Well, let's take a look at that. Um, As I've already pointed out, David was feeling the good kind of shame, the kind of shame that he should have felt in the face of his actions. I mean, these were egregious actions that David had taken. Um, If he had not felt those kinds of feelings no remorse, no regret, we would have asked, have you no shame? We would have wondered to ourselves, what's wrong with David? Does he have zero conscience that he would not feel bad at all about this horrible thing that he had done? Um, But in fact, he does have those feelings. He says, they follow me around all day long. The question for us is, okay, well, Maybe I've committed not murder, but I've hurt somebody or I've hurt people or I've done things in my life that I'm not proud of. I've done things in my life that have warranted me feeling the feelings of shame. But does David now have to walk around for the rest of his life feeling like junk? Does David have to walk around for the rest of his life feeling these feelings of remorse and regret and shame, strong as they were the day that he confessed that sin? Or can he somehow be free of that? Can I somehow be free of those feelings? Can I put the past? in the past and walk forward in freedom into the future? And the answer to that question is, absolutely, you can. You can walk forward into freedom. And so what I want to share with you with the time that I have left are three steps, three biblical steps that you and I can take to put to death those feelings of shame. The first step is to develop a broken heart toward our sin, to develop a broken heart toward our sin. If you have your Bibles or you can follow on the screen, flip over to Psalm chapter 51 David wrote these words right after his meeting with Nathan. Psalm 51 and verse 16. So Nathan's come and he's confronted David. David said, I've sinned. And then David shares these words in this psalm. He writes, for you, God, will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. So David's thinking about the things that he's done and he's probably presented offerings to God for, for his sin some months back ago. He's probably presented some sacrifices to God Um, and thinking that that'll make amends. That is what God's looking for. He says, you know what? I've learned something here. Verse 17, he says, this is what God's looking for. He's not looking for sacrifices like that. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Remember that David has just been confronted with his sin, and his response to all this is that he's brokenhearted. David capitulates to this confrontation and says, you know what? I, I am, I'm tore up on the inside. I am broken hearted. And it's when he's broken hearted that then the mercies of God are unlocked. Then the forgiveness of God is unlocked. Then the shame that he's felt that's dominated his mind that's followed him around all day long, that that begins to melt away. But it's when David has a broken heart. Now that's very different than how the world responds when it's confronted like David was confronted by Nathan. What does the world say when it's confronted by sin? Uh, the world says, hey, you know what? I'm sorry that I got caught. Caught not sorry that I did it. I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry that I'm having to pay a heavy price for what I did. And if I had the opportunity to do it all over again and didn't get caught, yeah, I would do it all over again because I'm not sorry. That's the worldly sorrow, world sorry that it got caught. But the Bible describes a different kind of sorrow here, a godly kind of sorrow, a sorrow where we're brokenhearted over our sin or brokenhearted over what it was that we'd done. And if we had the opportunity to do it all over again and knew that we wouldn't get caught, we wouldn't do it anyway because we're brokenhearted that we did it in the first place. It's followed us around all day long. I don't ever want to experience that again. Um, Anybody here ever been to traffic court? Okay, had a few? (laughs) Okay, some raised hands, I'm impressed. This is good, this is good for us, right? This is healing. Okay, so uh, you've been to traffic court, and you know what happens at traffic. It's a pretty interesting place. I've been there a few times, I'll admit it. And um, when you're at traffic court, like, people show up, they're well-shaven, they've been out and had their hair cut, maybe somebody's wearing a suit that doesn't look like it quite fits them, or it doesn't quite button all the way, because they hadn't pulled that suit out of the closet in eight or ten years, right? And they stand before the judge, and they say to the judge how sorry they are that this will never happen again, and that they've learned their lesson. We know what that is, right? That's called courtroom repentance. That's telling the judge what the judge wants to hear. The bailiff knows it. The judge knows it. Everybody in the courtroom knows it. That we're just there as a big dress up. It's just a big game to go into the court, to stand in front of the judge, to say and do all the right things and hope and hope that we'll catch a break. That's courtroom repentance. Now, what I'm here to say to you is that godly repentance requires a broken heart. I'm sorry that ever did that in the first place. It's not courtroom repentance. It's not cutting your hair and dressing right and saying the right things so you can get the pressure off. A broken heart means a deep, gripping sense that this was an awful thing that we've done and that I'll never do it again, even if I have the chance. That is broken heartedness. And that's what David says, the Lord will not despise. The mercies of God are unlocked. The grace of God pours out. The shame that we've felt for so long begins to Melt away, friends, when that feeling of brokenheartedness enters in. All right. So, second step to avoid making excuses. Um, second step is to avoid making excuses. Look again at 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13. We read that a few moments ago. David has just con- been con- or Nathan has just confronted David, and David says, verse 13, "I have sinned against the Lord." Isn't it interesting that David doesn't make any excuses? David doesn't um, approach. Uh, Nathan and say, hey, you know what? That woman, she was out there on that veranda and she wouldn't have any clothes on. And so it was all her fault. It wasn't my fault. It was her fault. He doesn't start pointing fingers. He doesn't start starting, like, passing the blame around. Instead, David says, you know what? It was my fault. He doesn't blame it on the economy. He doesn't blame it on his parents. He doesn't blame it on peer pressure. He just says, you know what? It's my responsibility. It's my fault. I'm taking ownership of this. He doesn't make any excuses. There may come a time to say your piece or to explain yourself, but friends, in that moment of being confronted, in that moment of owning it, that's not the time to begin sharing our side of the story and why we think what happened, happened. You may have some perfectly good reasons why what happened, happened, but nevertheless, when you're taking full responsibility, in that moment of taking full responsibility, avoid making excuses. Friends, getting rid of shame is a bloody process. It demands brutal honesty with making about our mistakes and our faults. That's why people who want to spare themselves, who want to insulate themselves, who want to prop themselves up, are not prepared to experience or not good candidates for being free of the feeling of shame. Third and finally, if you've committed some sin that has left you feeling ashamed, step number three is to agree never to go back to living that way again. To agree never to go back to living that way again. Maybe you'll be perfect and never going back and doing that again. But we know human nature, right? Sometimes we repeat past mistakes, but there's a desire within us. There's something in our will that says, you know what, I'm not just gonna try, but I'm really intending that this never happens again. Um, Making a clean break from our sinful behavior. You know, a changed heart should result in changed behavior. A changed heart should result in changed behavior. Now, there are probably some folks here today that are feeling feelings of shame, that are feeling the kind of feelings that they should have. It's a good thing uh, because our behavior has warranted remorse. Our behavior has warranted some feelings of regret, and it's a good thing that we feel those kinds of shameful feelings. But at the same time, we desperately need to say, you know what, I don't ever want to, I don't want to continue this cycle of of, of being brokenhearted about it, of, of, of avoiding making excuses, but then here we are again. We're coming back again. Friends, we have to make a clean break with the past. We have to change our behavior moving forward into the future. If we don't want to experience that cycle of shame, we want it to melt away and stay away. We have to change our behavior. Um, There are some of us here today who, like David, in Psalm chapter 32, felt miserable on the inside, where the joy in his walk with God has just basically vanished. He's turned, I mean, he's basically dried up like an old prune in his walk with the Lord. And yet we've been letting those shame-inducing behaviors go on and on and on. I'm here today to invite you to repent, to make a U-turn, to change your behavior moving forward into the future. There are people here today with drug and alcohol problems that are destroying your family and are destroying the people that you love around you. And I'm asking you, are you brokenhearted enough to want to make a change? There are people here today that are destroying their marriage through disinterest and neglect and sexual unfaithfulness, and the damage is everywhere. And I'm here to ask you today, are you brokenhearted enough that you're ready to make a change? change. There are people here today who are slaves to pornography secretly, and it's tearing you up on the inside. And it's every time you close your eyes to talk with the Lord, there's that sin that just seems to hang on to you. My question to you today is, are you brokenhearted enough to change your behavior? Are you ready to make a change? There are Christians today that are dating couples that are going way too far and are undermining the very foundation of your relationship, your relationship with Christ. And I'm asking you today, are you brokenhearted enough that you're ready to make a change? There are people here who are giving their employer half a day's work for a full day's pay. There are people here today that are overworking and neglecting their children. I'm asking you, are you tired enough of that cycle and the shame that it produces? that you're ready to make a change. David finally got to a place where he was ready to make a change. The Lord sent the prophet Nathan to him. It took David a year of this stuff laying on top of him all day long. but Finally, David came to the place where he was ready to do this. He said, I can't go on like this. And the wonderful thing is that as soon as David was ready to admit and to own his mistakes, here comes the Lord with his forgiveness. Here comes the Lord with his grace. Here comes the Lord with his mercy. And those things just flooded into David's heart and flooded into his life. And all the shame that he had felt and all the remorse and the regret that he had felt just melted away. And his past went to the past and it stayed there. And he didn't walk in that anymore. He walked in the freedom that he knew in Christ. And so, my friends, God is standing here today with open arms asking you and I, are you ready? Is there more damage that you feel like you have to do before you come to a place where you're ready, where you're ready to admit, ready to relinquish, ready to be done with the things of the past? Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity today to hear from your word. We thank you for uh, the truth which pricks our heart and stirs us. Lord, there are probably things in all of our lives that we wish weren't a part of our day-to-day processes, our weekly processes. Lord, perhaps some stuff that really has um, produced some feelings of regret and remorse and shame. And uh, God, we've tried to get a handle on them. We've tried to surrender them over. We've said all the things that we could say. We've felt brokenhearted, but Lord, we just haven't been able to overcome. And so Lord, we just want to say today that We recognize our behavior is wrong. We want to say today, Lord, that we are ready to finally drive a stake in the ground. We are ready to make a U-turn. We're ready to make that change. Lord, we just ask in the quietness of communion as we celebrate your broken body and your shed blood, that your Holy Spirit would tell us that you can take hold of this, that you can bring the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace and the forgetfulness about our past, which we has been so elusive. That Lord, through your Holy Spirit, you can bring that to bear in our lives. Lord, work in our hearts. Speak to us today, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen.